Uh, I can do it, Daddy. Uh, the little boy is learning to ride his bike. His dad is running behind him, holding him up. Uh, and now the boy thinks he can do it by himself. Let go, Dad. I can do it without you. Uh, and perhaps he can. Uh, that's certainly the goal, to ride by himself. But perhaps he can't. And once Dad lets go, he'll wobble, fall over and hurt his elbow. Now this is the way that many people think about the Christian life. They think it's like learning to ride a bike. They think that you need God's help to start, but that after that you're on your own. They think that God saves people by his grace, but then he sort of steps back and leaves it up to us. They think that their progress and their obedience and their growth depend on their own efforts and their own ability. But that's completely wrong. And it's foolish and it's dangerous and it leads to fear and anxiety and uncertainty. Sometimes it leads to pride. And it's slavery, not freedom. And it's what the Galatian church was beginning to think. Uh, look at what Paul writes to them in verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Neil, you need to turn the amplifier on in the vestry. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> uh, Paul had told them the Gospel. The good news that they can be made right with God simply by trusting what Jesus has done. And that it's not about how many good works they can do. It's not about keeping the law. And then the Galatian church had trusted what they'd heard. They trusted that, what, the message and then God had forgiven them and given them his Holy Spirit. That was history. But then these false teachers had come in, these con men, and they'd said that Jesus is not enough. But it was Jesus plus. Jesus plus law-keeping, Jesus plus circumcision or keeping the Sabbath or not eating pork. They were teaching that Jesus isn't enough to be right with God. They were teaching that you start with Jesus but then you move on. You make sure, you reinforce what Jesus has done. You say to God, I can do it without you, thanks. Now that's what he's describing in verse 1 where he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They've been tricked into accepting something that is fake and inferior. And Paul is going to make three points to prove uh, his position, to prove that he's right. Uh, firstly, look to your own experience, how you began the Christian walk. Uh, he reminds them in verse 1, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Think back, he's saying. Remember the evidence in your own life. When, when I first came to you, when I first presented Jesus, I made it as plain as I could. Did I talk to you then about what you needed to do? No. It was all about what Jesus has done. Perfectly keeping the law, then crucified in your place. 
That's the key. And then God offers you rescue and forgiveness and freedom instead. That, that was my message, says Paul. It was clear as a bell, presented as logically and plainly and unmistakably as I could. But don't just think back to when you heard the message. What, what about when you accepted it? How did you do that? Did you complete a special training course? Did you have to achieve a certain moral standard? No. Look at verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And it's an obvious question, isn't it? They heard Paul's clear call that all they, uh, then all they did was trust what he said. And they received God's Holy Spirit poured out onto them with power, opening their eyes, convicting them of sin, assuring them of salvation. And I hope that it was like that with you too, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. I hope your story is that someone told you about Jesus and God's offer of forgiveness and that all you had to do was trust it. And then at some point you decided, yes, I believe that. I hope your story of becoming a Christian isn't that you decided one day that you needed to know God, so you began to get your life together. You set out on a path of continual moral self-improvement, gradually getting more and more law-abiding, until one day you'd realised that you'd made it. You'd measured up, you'd achieved a sufficient standard and so you must be a Christian. Is that the way it works? That's ridiculous. That's not the way it works. You don't become a Christian by doing that. Paul makes a similar point in verse 5. He says, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Did God only give gifts to people who were especially obedient? The all-stars, the select few, to those who'd earned the reward? No. He gave it to those who trusted what they heard. You experienced God, the, the Spirit's power in your life, spiritual gifts and joy and peace, even miracles... And Paul says it wasn't because you kept all the rules. It wasn't because you were the nicest person in the street. His argument is, if that's the way you began as a Christian, why are you now going back to something else? Verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal or reach the finish by human effort? After beginning the Christian journey with God's Spirit, why are you dropping him and trying to finish the journey yourself? Like a child learning to ride the bike who thinks he can do it without Dad. Why are you doing that? And I wonder if that's something we get wrong sometimes. That we begin the journey with Jesus. He's the way we are justified, the way we are put right with God. We realise at the start that we've got nothing to offer God. We're convicted of our sin and our need for God's forgiveness. Our conscience is 
feels the weight of our sin. Now that's certainly the way it was with me. When I became a Christian, I was about 15. I'd grown up in the church. I'd never doubted the truth of the gospel. But I don't think I'd ever realised what it meant to trust that message. And my life was up and down like a yo-yo. I was lying in my bed one night thinking about what a hypocrite I was. Uh, How I was trying to live as a Christian, but I became a different person during the week at school to what I was like at church on a Sunday. Like a child learning to ride a bike, I just kept falling over again and again and again. I couldn't live the way I knew God wanted me to live. And I, was, I remember thinking as I was lying in bed at night, I basically just gave up. And I prayed, God, I can't do this on my own. I've got nothing to offer you. If you want me, you're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to do the work. I realised that my pockets were empty and so I had to trust God because there was no point trusting myself. I'd tried that and it didn't work. Now, most of us start that way when we become Christian. We realise we need God. But then as time goes by, as we learn more, we read our Bibles, we attend church, perhaps God begins to change our character and our priorities and our lifestyle. Perhaps we begin to use the gifts that he's given us And as those things happen, perhaps we start to be proud of our achievements. Maybe we start comparing ourselves to people around us, people who don't measure up to our particular standards. We begin with the spirit, but then the basis of our confidence begins to drift. To slide across from trusting what Jesus has done to what we do. If you do that, you're basically saying Jesus didn't need to die. That you can do it without him. Now, it's true that growing more like Jesus will take hard work. I'm not saying you just get back to sit, you just sit back and do nothing. Growing more like Jesus is hard work. It will take self-discipline and sacrifice and tough decisions. The Bible has plenty to say about that. But those are the things that we do because we are God's children. No matter how much you grow, no matter how godly your character, how much you achieve, none of that will make you more acceptable to God. So don't trust it. Don't rely on it. Don't think that it makes you more worthy than someone else. That's addressing pride, but but flip that over. Failing will not make you any less acceptable to God. As long as you keep trusting in what Jesus has done, then God will not abandon you because you have a bad day, because you've given in to temptation, because you've sinned badly and you've let yourself down and others. People who trust their own efforts on lack assurance. Perhaps they despair or are anxious or are fearful. 
People who are looking to what they've done, if you ask them if they're sure if they're going to heaven, they will say, I hope so. I'd like to think so. I'm trying my best. Those comments come from trusting what you've done, not what Jesus has done. Now that doubt, just like the flip, just like moral pride, both of those things come from trusting our own work rather than Jesus. It's the same disease, but a different symptom. Pride or doubt. It's not understanding the message of the true gospel. If you've accepted God's offer of forgiveness, if you've repented of your sin, if you've trusted Jesus as the one who sets you free, then God makes you one of his children, giving you his spirit, you are born again. You cannot add anything to that. So trust it and don't trust anything else. But Paul moves on. The second point of his argument uh, from verse 6 is don't just look to your own experience, don't just look to how you became a Christian, look to Father Abraham. Verses 6 to 9. Now, now this is a masterstroke, I think, for, for Paul as he argues against the Jews. Abraham was their hero the father of the Jewish nation, and especially a hero to those who valued circumcision. Because Abraham was the one God gave circumcision to, and God said that Abraham was to circumcise every one of his descendants. Now, it seems like Paul, Paul's opponents, were saying something like, yeah, it's good to trust in Jesus, but to be a child of Abraham, you have to do this extra thing. You have to be circumcised. But Paul says that's rubbish. Look at verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Paul's point is that you need to check the timeline. Genesis 12 and 15 is where God promises to make Abraham into a great nation to be his God and to bless him. And we're told in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God's promise and then God credited that to him as righteousness. God counted him as righteous because he trusted God's promise. That's an accounting metaphor. It's, he, he puts that state of being righteous into a different column. He moves him from one, puts him into another. He credits him righteousness because he trusts. That, that's it. Had nothing to do with circumcision. That doesn't come till chapter 17. It comes after. Circumcision is a simple sign that God, Abraham was already one of God's children because he believed. It was an external reminder of what God had done on the inside. And so Paul's point is not just about Abraham, but nothing has changed. Abraham wasn't made right with God through circumcision. It still works the same way for everyone who follows Abraham. Verse 7, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. What makes you one of Abraham's children is not your birth certificate. It's whether you trust God's promise, like Abraham did. 
And it's not even as if God changed the entrance requirements since Paul's time. He'd actually always, sorry, in Paul's time, God hasn't changed the entrance requirements now that Jesus has come along. He's always planned to include all nations. He actually promised that to Abraham. Do you see that there in verse 8? The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That's the nations, the non-Jews. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Isn't that a lovely phrase? It's something like he pre-announced the gospel to Abraham. However many thousand years before Jesus. All nations will be blessed through you. And so people from places like Galatia or China or Australia or the Netherlands, people God never gave the Old Testament law to, right from the start he promised Abraham that he would reverse the curse on the whole world. That he would begin with Abraham and then Abraham's descendants Israel, but then the whole world would be blessed. And he would do it not by people keeping the Jewish law, but by counting people righteous by faith. The same way he declared Abraham righteous. And so he says in verse 9, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And his point is, that's what you Galatians had done. When you believed the message of Jesus crucified, they became 100% children of Abraham. Not a drop of Jewish blood in them, but they were Abraham's children because they believed the same way Abraham did. So that's Paul's second argument. Look to Father Abraham. His third argument is to look to, look to the Old Testament. This was the very thing that false teachers were using as their evidence, the Jewish false teachers. They said, look, look at the Jewish scriptures. God commands you to keep the law. Be circumcised, keep the Sabbath, eat the right sort of food. That's obviously how you get right with God. But Paul actually takes the Jewish scriptures and he uses it against them. He's just talked about blessing, uh, how people are blessed when they trust God, like Abraham. But now he flips that over and talks about cursing, which is the opposite. And the verse Paul is quoting from in verse 10 is from Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. And the interesting thing is Paul says it a tiny bit differently. Perhaps it was a verse his opponents were using to help their argument. But what Paul does is combine it with the very next verse. This is Moses talking and he's just given Israel the law and he says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Now that's the bit the false teachers liked. Keep the law or else you'll be cursed. But they'd forgotten the very next verse, which is into chapter 1 of chapter 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. He keeps reading. Did you spot the issue? 
You're cursed if you don't, you're blessed if you do, but the key idea is you have to keep all of it. You have to fully obey. The only way to be blessed is to keep all of it. Otherwise you're cursed. Now that's the bit the false teachers didn't really understand. The thing is, the Old Testament law is a little bit like a course of antibiotics. Uh, That is, once you start taking the course, you have to take the whole course. You can't stop halfway through just because you're feeling better. Uh, It could actually make it worse. You you, you might end up having an antibiotic-resistant infection that you've got to finish the course. And and that's the point with the law. If you want to keep the law, you've got to keep all of it. You can't half keep it. All who rely on observing the law, verse 10, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You can't just pick and choose. If you're going to rely on the law to make you right with God, you've got to take the whole course. That's... That's the way of being cursed, because no one can do it. You can't keep the whole law. And so verse 11 and 12, Paul quotes two Old Testament verses that show two different ways of living. Verse 11, you can either live by faith, or verse 12, you can live by law-keeping, which has nothing to do with faith. There are blessings to those who have faith, but curses, God's condemnation to those who try to keep the whole law, That's your choice. Two separate roads. You can't walk with one foot on each road. It's like a boat and a jetty and you're you're trying to keep a foot on the boat and and the jetty and the boat just gets further and further. You can't do it. You're on one or the other. Blessing when you trust, curse when you try to keep the works of the law. When you put it like that, it's no wonder Paul calls them foolish for trying to live a path which is cursed. But he's not finished yet. He has one more Old Testament reference. It's a verse about how trusting Jesus leads you to the blessings of God. Uh, And once again, it's announced back in the Old Testament uh, that Jesus would be cursed in your place. Do you see what he says in verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, in Old Testament times, when somebody was stoned for breaking some law, his dead body was hung on a tree. This would be a sign that this person was under God's curse. Uh, That's what the quote is about from Deuteronomy 21, 23, and it's up there on the screen. But Paul quotes it and references Jesus in that. Uh, He suffered God's curse. He hung on a tree, on a a cross. He became a curse so that you and I didn't have to be cursed. He buys us back. He redeems us. He saves us from being a curse with the price of his own life. He frees us from curse so we can be blessed. This is all there in the Old Testament scriptures, says Paul, that these false teachers love to quote. And so Paul finishes his argument in verse 14, and I think he, he, uh, 
he actually summarises his three points that he's made. See if you can see them with me. In verse 14, he redeemed us. That's Jesus' third point. Sorry, that's Paul's third point. Uh, In order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That's his second point. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's his first point. Uh, Trusting in Jesus, who redeems us and pays for our freedom, that's the way to receive the blessings of God. The blessings of being made right with him, the blessings of being one of God's children, the blessing of God's Holy Spirit living with us and in us. But not just as you begin, not just receiving blessings as as a first, as a beginning, it's the blessing of living continuing we continue to live by faith as we trust jesus god's spirit grows us and moves us to the end goal it is all his work through trusting him it was lovely to see the verse on the video i don't know if you noticed it philippians 1 4 and 5 did you notice it uh it didn't quote all of verse 5 um uh, verse 4 says we uh we pray for you, and here we, I'm going off memory, um, knowing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. That, that's the end of verse 5. It wasn't there on the video. But Jesus begins the work, but he carries it on to completion. That's why Paul could pray with boldness, because God was completing what he'd begun. Christian growth is not like learning to ride a bike. You don't begin with God's help and then finish the job on your own. You don't become independent. Maturity is not becoming independent from God. Maturity is becoming increasingly dependent on him. We don't begin with faith and finish with works. The truth is you can't make any Christian progress on your own. Any growth or fruit or maturity in you is all God's work. He saved you by his spirit and he shapes you by his spirit. We'll see more of the Holy Spirit's work in chapter 5. God commands us to live by the spirit, chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, Sorry, uh, verse 16, by the power, we're to live by the power of the spirit. Verse 18, we're commanded to be led by the spirit. Verse 25, we're to keep in step with the Spirit. And all of that, chapter 5, 22 and 23, so that we might display the fruit of our good character? No, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the life of blessing or freedom that comes when we trust God, trust the message of the Gospel rather than ourselves. Now this has real practical implications. When we trust that God is at work in us, rather than trusting ourselves, that's going to look like something in your life. If you trust God rather than yourself, we will pray, we will pray regularly and fervently because God's spirit grows the fruit. If you think you can do it on your own, you won't pray. If you trust what God is doing in you, then you will walk walk 
humbly and dependently as you serve him, without pride or comparison with others, because it's God's spirit that grows the fruit. If we trust God rather than ourselves, then we will let his word shape us and guide us. We will actually read his word expectantly because his word is the sword of his spirit and God's spirit grows the fruit. If we trust God rather than ourselves, when we sin, we will repent quickly and confidently knowing that God's promise is sure and the work of his son is solid. We won't wallow in self-pity or guilt. If we trust God rather than ourselves, we will have the confidence to correct and challenge one another in humility and love. Because we know that it is not up to us to convince someone of their wrongdoing. And we have no basis of pride as we compare ourselves to them. Because it's God's spirit that grows fruit in other people. He's joined us into a church family to use us to grow his fruit in one another. Now this is what it looks like for you to go on the way you started. To trust the work of Jesus and the promises of God to finish the job as well as to begin it. Philippians 1.5, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now this is what blessing looks like rather than curse. The curse of trying to be justified by keeping the law fully. The curse that results in either pride as you compare yourself to someone else or else self-pity and guilt and worry because you don't think you measure up. How many generations of Christians have failed to understand that? They've lived in the fear of somehow not being quite good enough to be accepted by God, or even worse, convinced that they were good enough, better than others. That's curse. Jesus has taken our curse, so we might experience the blessing of living by faith. Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You trusted that. Make sure that's the way you continue. That's the only way to blessing. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him when we've had a good day, when we feel we're doing well compared to others, when we're tempted to take pride in our own situation. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when we've failed yet again and we're tempted to despair. Help us always uh, to look to him as the one who will carry on to completion the good work that he began in us. And we pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen.